So last week, we started talking about the uh, book of Jude. So go ahead and be turning there. Uh, If you were here with us, uh, we looked at the first eight verses. We kind of stopped in the middle of a section, and we're going to go back and start with verse five uh, again today. But I want us to, before we start, I want us to think about a couple of different things. First of all, Jude, who we talked about, uh, a brother here to Jesus, was writing to a crowd that was extremely knowledgeable of Jewish history, Jewish tradition, and Jewish culture. And whenever we talk to people who are familiar with our shared history, tradition, and culture, a lot of times we say things or explain things or maybe fail to explain things in part because we assume that that person already knows what that is, okay? We don't have to tell anybody why we were off last Friday. If you called somebody and said, well, my kids are coming in, or I'm going to my sister's house, or something like that on Friday, everybody would have known why. It's Christmas, right? So it's a holiday, and so that's something that sort of happens. People do this or that. We would have said, okay, well, it is, Friday is Christmas, as you know. And so I'm going to go, because that's what, on Christmas, we don't explain things like that. Why do we not explain things like that in everyday conversation? It's assumed. It's assumed. You already know this. You live in the same place that I do. We live a very similar life. So when we know people, or when we see people, that have uh, that come from a similar background as us, we sort of assume that knowledge. Now, let's say that you had someone from Africa or from Asia who came and spent a summer with you, and you didn't say anything. But on July fourth, at about nine o'clock in the evening, you just went out and started lighting things on fire, making explosions. Would that? confuse this person who's maybe from another country. Why would why would that be confusing perhaps to somebody who was from Asia or Africa? They wouldn't know what's going on. I mean, it's a little war zone. Why are we doing this? Why are we shooting things up in the air? Likewise, unless you live close to me, if you went out on July the 8th and started doing that, that would confuse the people that are here, right? Like, why are you shooting those? It's perfectly normal. Yeah, it's perfect. Nothing. Independence Day is the greatest two weeks of the year in life. <laughs> the point of that being, though, is that if we're talking to people who understand or who are experienced in that same culture, sometimes we just sort of assume things. What Jude writes about here is in many ways to an audience of Jewish people who knew what he was talking about. We spent, we talked last week, and we'll look at it this week, or maybe this week, about how he references the book of Enoch. Well, there is no biblical book of Enoch. There was a book of Enoch, just like there's all kinds of books. There's millions of volumes of books in the Library of Congress or in the British Library or wherever else the books might be. He referenced the book that people would have known. Okay? He makes reference to something that people know. Unfortunately for us, 
to us. A, we're not Jewish. B, it's 2,000 years later. So we lack some of that knowledge. Us, in many cases, reading the book of Jude is like an Asian person being here on July the 4th. This clearly means something, but I'm not exactly sure what it is. So when we look at this tonight, I want us to keep in mind that the book of Jude was written to a specific group of people at a specific time who would know specifically what he was talking about. So let's go to verses 5 through 11. Now, we already talked about verses 5, 6, 7, and 8 last week, and then we just sort of stopped mid-paragraph. So what I want us to do is read that entirety tonight. If you want to make mention of something in verses 5 through 8, you can, but our focus is really going to be in verses 9, 10, and 11. Uh, Shelby, you care to read verses 5 through 11, sir? But I want to remind you, though, you once knew this, that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their proper domain, but left their own abode, he is reserved in everlasting change under darkness for the judgment of the great day. As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise, also these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil, when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him the reviling accusation, but said, The Lord rebuked you. But these speak evil of whatever they do not know, and whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts, and these things they corrupt themselves. Woe to them, for they have gone in the way of Cain, have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and perished in the rebellion of Corinth. So when we read these set of verses here, we're reading writing by somebody who is extremely well-schooled in the Old Testament. Everything referenced here is in the Old Testament, but some of these are stories that your, your dear old teacher had to look up and study up a little bit himself. Right? Verse 11, I remember the Cain story. The Balaam story is a little bit confusing. The correct, the, the, the correct rebellion. I had to go back and I had to read the whole thing. He's not talking to me here. He's talking to a group of people who knew what he was talking about. Now, for me to learn it, i got to study. I've got to dive into this a little bit. I've got to figure out what is this reference that he's making here. So he talks there in verse 6 about the angels who did not keep their proper domain. So he's mentioned angels, but let's go to verse 9. In verse 9 he says, Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring him a reviling accusation, but said, quote, The Lord rebuke you. Now, there's a whole lot going on in verse 9 to the point that we may not be able to get past verse 11 tonight. But in verse 9, the first question is, yet Michael, who is Michael? Who is this Michael? And I don't like Michael Jordan. <laughs> is that what you're talking about here? Who are we talking about in this Michael? Well, that's a challenging question that requires a little bit of looking. First of all, Michael, in verse 9, says, Yet Michael, the archangel, or archangel, depending on how you want to, how you pronounce it, but it's archangel, uh, if you're saying it properly. Archangel is only, only time it appears in the Bible, except for this is in 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 16. 
In that one song we sing, by the archangel, that's it. But that we, we, it's in a song, but it didn't really happen in the Bible too much. What would an ark in front of anything be? A-R-C-H in front of any word. You know what that means? I'm sorry? It's something higher. An ark makes like this, right? If you go to the top of the St. Louis Arch, you're at the highest point of the arch. Now, those words all root back in the same way, but the archangel would be the highest angel. Now, I've already said last week that studying angels is complicated and can be confusing. I thought Josh did a really good job with it the other day or whenever he spoke a month or so ago about that. But it's a complicated thing. But it clearly describes this Michael as being the archangel. But we only see that word one other time. Like I said, that's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and verse 16. If you want to look, we can all look together. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 16 says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. These verses should be familiar to you. With the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. This talks about the end of time. But it says with the voice of an archangel, implying that there would be more than one. But Michael's referred to here as this one. Well, so let's say, is this, who is this Michael angel? Well, we see him in two different locations. If you go back to the book of Daniel in the Old Testament, we can find this guy, my, this angel Michael. Daniel chapter 10. Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel. If you're wanting to do a little search in there. Don't do what I did. You're already in Amos. That's not going to work. Daniel chapter 10. Now, I'm not going to read the whole thing. But in Daniel chapter 10, starting in verse 13, we see this reference to Michael. It says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael one of the chief princes came up to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. We see that Michael reference there. If we go over to verse, uh, excuse me, verse 21, but I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me ex- against these except Michael, your prince. We see it again in Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Michael shall stand up, the great prince who stands watch over the sons of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, and it goes on a little bit further. We see Michael referenced in Revelation chapter 12, in verse 7 through 9. We'll see this. As well, turn to Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9. This is a description here of uh, Satan being thrown out of heaven. And war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail. Nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, the serpent of old, called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. In all references to Michael, we see it in a violent or a fighting aspect. So let's go back to Jude. Jude makes reference in verse 9 to Michael, the archangel. Now, this is a combination of studies from myself and things that I have read to try and find out. 
It's obvious from what we see here that Jude is writing about someone or something, however you want to use that term to describe an angel. Jude is writing about something that the Jewish people would have been familiar with. I'm not sure that there's any book in the Bible, in the the Old Testament, that the Jewish people were more familiar with than the book of Daniel. It may have been the most familiar one. This story would have made sense to them. However, there is no tradition that precisely corresponds with this story of Michael. Now, I say that because this story appears to be something that is, has been told throughout Jewish history of who this Michael the archangel is. Okay? Now, I don't want you to get confused, and I don't want to dive too deep into it. But there's this story that exists that said that Michael was appointed to minister at the burial of Moses. And that the devil urged that his murder of the Egyptian. You remember the story of Moses? He saw the, uh, he saw the Egyptian beating the Israelite slave and Moses killed him. There's this story uh, that sort of exists in Exodus chapter 2 that the devil urged that the murder of the Egyptian had deprived him of the right of burial. Now, I say that, however, because there's all of these sort of stories that exist in historical Judaism of who Michael was. Now, when we make these references, I ask you about traditions that we have. Sometimes there are stories that are told from our past that sort of get bigger and distorted over time. Can you think of any examples or stories that are told from the past that get, that get sort of distorted or built up over time? They are. Tall tales. True. Well, the story of Preacher Columbus is, it's, a, it's, it's been embellished. Sorry. Sorry. It's a, it, it, when he actually never came to America. You know, All right. That's the story. I mean, it seemed like he landed it, you know, on the, on the shore and everything went swimming. You know. mm-hmm. That story's been changed. True. Sometimes we give sort of credence to things that may be. You know, we don't know all the story, but we kind of those are those are legends, those are traditions. It appears that this Michael the angel, the archangel, has throughout Jewish history. I'm not talking about what we see in the Bible, but throughout Jewish history, has sort of been given like this guy, this this is the angel. Well, we don't really see that scripturally, so maybe all the credit that's given to him, and that's okay, because what we said here was Jude is writing to what people? people? He's writing to the Jewish people. If I were to ask you, why did the pilgrims come to America? What are you probably going to say? Religious freedom. freedom. We've taken 400 years worth of history and distilled it down to two words. That happens. Okay? That's not really accurate. Only about half the people had any religious thought at all. That wanted, but that doesn't matter. We narrow it down. We kind of give credit, we build these things up, or we make it simpler or easier, whatever word you want to use for. And that's what we sort of see here with this Michael. Daniel, we know a tremendous amount about Daniel Boone. Right. Country that people in California don't know much about. Sure. They, 
they yes. Heard, they've not heard those stories. We we live where he walked and where he lived, and, uh, and uh, we can go see it. Just you know, the, the rocks he stood on, the forts he built. We can see that stuff. People in California don't know. So when we look at this, when we think about, I, I only say this just for the for one reason. Jude makes mention of this story in verse nine because he knows that the people will understand who this Michael person is. That's what he's making reference here. And so he's going to say something to Michael here, contending with the devil about the body of Moses. Well, if we go to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, we really don't see that. If we go to Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6, this is where Moses dies. This is the tail end of Deuteronomy chapter 34, verses 5 and 6. Moses goes up to Mount Nebo, and you can read the first handful of verses if you want to, but verse 5, so Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab according to the word of the Lord, and he buried him in a, he there is capitalized by the way, and he buried him in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Poor, but no one knows his grave to this day. There's no mention of the devil there, but it appears that Jude is retelling a tradition that existed among the Jewish people that this Michael, the angel, and the devil here sort of fought battles with each other. That's what we see in Revelation. Revelation is a, what kind of book? Revelation is a figurative book. I don't know that Revelation chapter 12, verses 7 through 9, about Michael and the devil fighting and fighting. I don't know exactly how to take that. But the people who read that 2,000 years ago, that wouldn't make sense, though. Yes? Uh, this is the book of Enoch in chapter 20. It mentions seven archangels. Michael, Raphael, Gabriel, Uriel, Seraphel, Raphael, and Lucifer. Okay. And that's the point that I was trying to get out there, not to confuse anybody, because this can get kind of confusing. And I know I can go down some rabbit holes on these things that get me more interested than probably you are. But the point being is I want us to always keep this in mind, that these books were written to people at the time. Those people understood what it was. And for us, it requires a little bit of study. I don't think you're going to go to heaven or go to hell because you understand verse nine of the book of Jude. But I think it helps us to understand what these people were writing about if we at least have some passing background understanding of it. Personal. That's what I think. Now, let's go a little further into verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, in contending with the devil when he disputed about the body of Moses, dared not bring against him what the Bible says there is a reviling accusation. What would a reviling accusation be? This is, is it a reviling judgment? Okay, okay. Other thoughts? Yes. There you go. Now, I think this is really important. If you look up reviling accusation just as a straight up dictionary definition, you're going to see to mock, to condemn, to curse, or to falsely accuse. I think this is important for us. In this story here, in verse 9, it says that this angel does not bring against the devil 
a reviling accusation, but rather says what? Who does the angel work for? Whose job is it to bring the reviling accusations? Who's the judge? God is. I don't understand angels. I don't think if I lived to be a billion years old, I would understand angels. But I think the angel's responsibility is in whatever case to work for God. But God's responsibility is to be the ultimate judge of us. And I think that's what we see in this picture. It looks like the devil, or excuse me, that Michael, or any angel could have said this, 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 this about the devil. But that's not his responsibility. That was God's responsibility. Right. Right. So it's not that they weren't powerful, but they, I mean, he clearly knew his limitations and what he was supposed to do. Sure. We would understand this all better if we understood kingdoms. Mm -hmm. When the king sent you down to collect the tax from Mr. Jones over here, that, that's all you had to do was collect. He might not give you any, but he might tell you, don't kill Mr. Jones. Right. And if you kill Mr. Jones, you better be, you, sure. you're in bad trouble because you've disobeyed the king. If he said, just simply go collect the tax, I don't care how you do it, well, you can kill Mr. Jones. Sure. So you had to do exactly what the king said. We don't have to do exactly what the president said, okay? Sure. They make laws and all that stuff. We can do it on some time. We do it on time. We don't. Uh, we talk bad about them. Sure. Yeah. But we don't understand kingdoms. People that understood kingdoms, these people, they knew. When the emperor and Caesar spoke, you better step up and listen, okay? And when God, the, the emperor of heaven, speaks, the angels listen. And those that did was Satan and his angels, they were cast out of heaven because they're not. They're under. If we go back to verses 3 and 4, he talks about people who have crept in unnoticed. John mentions the same thing. We, we see the same thing in 1st, 2nd, 3rd John as well. Verses 3 and 4, he's talking about what you need to be prepared for. Contending for the faith and what's going to come up against it. Verses 5 through 11 are all sorts of historical examples of things that have come in and have caused problems. Verse 10, it says, But these speak evil of whatever they do not know. And whatever they know naturally, like brute beasts in these things, they corrupt themselves. Why does he compare false teachers to animals, I guess we'd say in verse 10? I think so. I, I, I picture the bull in the china shop. Okay. The bull in the china shop doesn't know that he's in a china shop and these things are worth a lot of money. He's just going to start flailing around and tear up a lot of stuff. Okay. That's what sometimes these, these teachers are. You don't know the harm you're doing with this destructive teaching. Yes. They're ignorance of the truth, if you will. Well, sometimes, with the word ignorance, sometimes we, we, we kind of have a, there's a different way of defining what ignorance is. But... Their ignorance of the truth. Think about it this way. Now, you can train an animal to do any number of things. But animals are not rational beings. Okay? Now, they could be trained, but they're not rational beings. Okay? One of these false teachers is not, what we're seeing here, they're not going to hear both sides and make the decision. Okay? If you were to set your dog down and try to explain both sides of an argument to the dog, 
What's going to come from that? <laughs> He's going to bark. <clears throat> You're probably never going to get the dog. is not going to make it. Okay. Well, here's, here's the proton, the proton. That's not how animals work, right? Now, when that dog does the wrong thing, will that train? It probably will. But they usually train these good sort of after the fact. I heard, I know, I this one time. I heard a comedian one time that said that he said his wife kept telling the child to not touch the stove. He said, he, the kid goes in there and touches the stove. She said, why did you do it? And he said, the kid said, Dad told me to. Mom comes in and said, why did you tell the kid to touch the stove? He said, I won't touch it anymore. He had to learn. Okay? He had to sort of learn. He put that child in that spot. The idea of rational thought sometimes doesn't exist with the people. And what Jude is saying right here is that these false teachers, these people that come in and try and say this or that, they're saying that Jesus didn't exist, well, whatever it might be. He's saying that they don't want to hear both sides. In the book of John, John says that they were here, they were denying that Christ existed from the very people who were there with Christ. You're not hearing both sides right there. But if it needed a little bit more confirmation, let's go to verse 11. Woe to them, he's saying to these false teachers, and he's mentioned a lot of things. He says, for they have gone in the way of Cain. They have run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit, and they have perished in the rebellion of Korah. All things that we're familiar with, right? Jill, tell me everything you know about the rebellion of Korah right now. Lucy, what are you laughing at, Lucy? You know the answer to that one? <laughs> you know why you don't know? You're not a Jewish person living 2,000 years ago. There was 200, wasn't there? With Korah. 200 people. Well, let's dive in here and see for just a second. All right, we'll look at three things here. I want to look at the story of Cor or Cain, the story of uh, uh, Balaam and Cor's rebellion. Do you have something, Mary? Oh, sorry, God. All right. So Cain, we see Cain in the book of Genesis. Who was Cain? He's the son of Adam and Eve and the brother of who? Cain. Look, you guys, let's see. But we, we go, we're doing the easy one first. I get that. Now, what's the story of Cain and Abel? What did Cain, I guess what was Cain's job? Maybe that's the best way to describe it. What did he do? Hold on to that. Not yet. Yes, but no. That's the right answer, but it can't be the right answer yet. What did he do? Yeah, you're all right, but y'all answered question four before we get done with question three. What did Cain do? For a living. Well, no, not for a living. Just what, what caused the Cain and Abel problem in the first place? His sacrifice. His sacrifice. Okay. Cain's sacrifice, he gives his offering to God. And how did God view Cain's sacrifice? It was unacceptable. Okay. It was unacceptable. And so what does Cain then do? There you go. God, God accepted and Abel's sacrifice, but he did not accept it. So God accepts Abel's sacrifice. And so Cain, unaccepted, does what? He kills his brother. 
Okay? Now, why does he kill his brother? Yeah. I'm jealous. The right answer there for Cain would have been to have done what? What, what should Cain have done? There you go. He should have figured, how, how do I fix this? But instead, jealousy got the better of him. Does that happen in the church at times? That's what Jude's talking about right here in verses 11. Verse 11. He makes these three references. He says that jealousy sort of came in. And instead of trying to do what's right, we get jealous and mad about somebody who did it a little bit better. Not that he did a good job preaching, but I would have been able to done that a whole lot better. Why won't they ask me? He's not even very good. Wait a minute. I started out saying it was good, now he's bad. Now, well, let's just give it up. That's all silly, but it's true. That happens. Jealousy. Let's go to the second one. Numbers chapter 22 is where we'll find Balaam's story. B-A-L-A-A-M. Y'all, are going to be all over the place tonight. I said turn to Jude. We've only been there for five minutes. Now, I'm not going to assume that we're real familiar, 22, that we're real familiar with the story of Balaam, but it begins in Numbers chapter 22. And all the old references to Balaam say that he's a non-Israelite. He's reviled as a wicked man in both the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We see that in 2 Peter, Jude here that we're at. We see it again in Revelation. Balaam refused to speak what God did not speak and would not curse the Israelites, even though he wasn't one. Even though in Numbers chapter 22, 23, and 24, you can read it all if you want to, King Balak of Moab offered him money to curse the Israelites. But Balaam's error and the source of his wickedness that we'll get to come from what we would say maybe sort of sabotaging or sort of trying to knock out the Israelites, if we will, as they enter into the promised land. In Revelation chapter 2 and verse 14, Balaam tells King Balak how to get the Israelites to commit sin by enticing them with sexual immorality and food sacrificed to the idols. The Israelites fell for it just like this. See, what Balaam did in Jude 1, verse 11, they've run greedily in the air of Balaam for profit. Greed, the, 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 the greed there, Balaam knew the weaknesses of the Israelite people. And he told somebody what those weaknesses were. Who here has weaknesses? Everybody does. All of us have weaknesses. Should it be our responsibility, should it be our task as a fellow Christian to try and pray on each other's weaknesses? Should we do that? Absolutely not. Do people... That's a total opposite, isn't it, Leland? Don't pray on the weaknesses, but bear one another's burdens. If you know that somebody struggles with something, should you taunt that in front of them? You come to church on Sunday and you say, my New Year's resolution is I'm going to lose however much weight. And I come to church Sunday with the Hershey bar and hang it in front of your face the whole time. Well, that's a silly example, but what am I doing? You're not helping. I'm not helping at all. It might be something that's, I, I, you know, it'd be hard for me to lose that weight. There's a girl that I work with that she's lost like 10 or 
She said, thanks. I'm glad you noticed. I didn't ask what she was doing. We were talking about it one time. That's the opposite of sort of praying on the weaknesses. If we pray on each other's weaknesses, if we try to bring each other down, how can the church grow? It can't. It's impossible for it to grow. Because sometimes our weaknesses might be physical, but sometimes our weaknesses might be spiritual. And those praying on those spiritual weaknesses is going to drive people out a lot more than it's going to bring people in. Third and final one that we'll wrap up with is Korah's Rebellion. We're in the book of Numbers. You can go back if you want to. Jude 11 says, and perished in the rebellion of Korah. Number 16, verses 1 through 40, indicates that this Korah rebelled against Moses along with 249 other people. And they were punished for their rebellion when God sent fire from heaven to consume all of them. Furthermore, there was a few Israelites that didn't like what had happened to Korah. They objected to Moses, and God then commanded Moses to depart from the multitude. After doing so, God smote 14,000 men with plague as punishing for objecting to Korah's destruction. So there's two things that happened in this rebellion. First of all, the two people, that, the, 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 the 250 people that were there that were part of the rebellion were killed with fire immediately. But there were some people that kind of sat back and said, I didn't think they should have done that. God told Moses, step aside for a minute. What happens to those people? 14,000 people short with a plague. What's the lesson for us right there? I think there's two things. I think one thing that when I get there, don't question God. Okay. Uh, we just we have no right, no right whatsoever to say, why would God send that person to hell? God didn't send that person to hell. That person made their own logical choices. God will judge. So we start, we have no right to question God about baptism, about eternity, about why he would send people to hell, about blah blah blah. It doesn't matter what we have no right to question God. We're not in that league. And we gotta stay out of it. Yeah, this is just simply what God said. Okay, so, anything else? What about the second part? The first people went, the first set, 250 odd people, rebelled against God. Well, that's not good. <clears throat> I would agree. That's bad. We shouldn't do that. What did the 14,000 people in the second part do? Yeah. Why did it? He shouldn't have done that. Why do you do that for? Well, do we sometimes get into that position? Have you ever heard the saying that everything happens for a reason? We've all heard that. Do we believe that? Do we ever get 
ourselves into the position of that second group of people in the rebellion of Korah that sort of said, he shouldn't have done, that shouldn't have happened. Do we ever find ourselves saying that? It's only natural, only human for us to ask those questions. We're only human. But we also have to realize that who is in charge of the world? Who rules the world that we live in? But who has a say in what happens in the world? Satan does. Satan's There's bad things that happen. And it's really hard to explain why it happens. I don't know the answer. We don't know the answer. But a lot of times, when the good things are happening, it's all because of me. And when the bad things are happening, it's God's fault. People fall into that trap, right? We have to avoid that. When Jude is talking to these people in these first 11 verses here, he's talking to a group of people that absolutely knew all of the references that he was making. He's talking to people that understood how the story of their ancestors talked about how people, that if you trace their tree back, they're related to these people. These are their family members that have suffered because of poor decisions or suffered because of things that were brought upon them. Jude knows his audience, and those people are understanding where he's coming from. For us, as a 21st century Christian today, what do we take from this? We have to avoid the same pratfalls that existed for them. They're not the same in the sense that we're not Jewish people, and, but they're still there. We can still fall into that jealousy of Cain. We can still fall into that temptation of Balaam. We can still fall into that complaining of Korah. How do we avoid it? Other thoughts? 